It's episode 106 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the program is Cheryl Kababa. She's the Vice President of Strategy for Seattle-based agency Substantial, and we're going to talk about how a systems thinking approach focused on outcomes can benefit the work designers do and the influence they have. Cheryl, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, we uh, we have so much overlap in our backgrounds, yet I don't believe we've ever actually met until just now. So it's it's wonderful to meet you. Yes, really nice to finally meet you. I've heard about you many times just because of our shared network. In fact, we both worked at different times for the same company at Adaptive Path. That's right. <laughs> uh, and that's interesting because there's a lot of history there. Um, the... Uh, the reality is it's been 20 years as of like two weeks ago, I think it was. It was uh, South by Southwest in Austin, Texas in March of 2001 that we had a party on a rooftop of a hotel announcing Adaptive Path. And that's kind of when we kicked it off. That's 20 years ago. Does that make you feel old? Uh, <laughs> well, there are other things that make me feel old. <laughs> uh, it, it's remarkable. I mean, I guess it's sort of the cliche of aging where I'm like, that that just fe- I felt like we just did that, like, right? Um, but yet, so much uh, so much has happened, um, and it's, it, I think that's kind of a perfect framing for what we want to talk about today, which is really uh, to me about these generational shifts that happen in what we call design. And um, I felt like you know, twenty years ago, the beginning of Adaptive Path, the beginning of a new century, that w- that we were going through one of those shifts from the shift of like purely thinking about technology products into something that we were kind of calling user experience, right? That, that actually looking at the experience that people have their, their, like how a product fits into their, their bigger lives in that context was more important than, you know, uh, we'll figure we're, we're experts. We can design this. And now I think, uh, something that you've been talking about quite a bit, uh, and we have been discussing on this podcast quite a bit is this idea of a shift now from, like, what are the shortcomings of just focusing on users and thinking about an experience that they have into a broader implication of what are the outcomes for society? And so I'd love to talk about that with you. I know that's been on your mind quite a bit. Yep, it's my favorite subject. I actually <laughs> taught a course at University of Washington um, with uh, the brilliant Beth Kolko, who is my colleague there. And it, yeah, we really got into it just in terms of um, yeah, just kind of the shortcomings of user-centered design and some of the resulting problems. And it's not just about, um, you know, user-centered design isn't doing enough. It's like our approach is often actively creating <laughs> cascading problems in the world. Yeah, that's so So that's interesting, um, uh, especially I, I've talked about this a few times on, uh, on the podcast uh, previously. But for example, right in, uh, I guess it was around 2005, 2006, I was working uh, at Google and uh, we were designing the first version of Google Analytics. And in that context, for a user who was a website owner, right, like the goal was like, like more insight will help you make a better product. If you can see what people are doing, you'll, you'll be able to design much better experiences for people. And now I, you know, I look back with how many years of 15 years of, of, of hindsight and go like, Oh my God, like, you know, we were creating the Genesis of like the global, like privacy tracking 
infrastructure and that that shift right and so one of my questions and maybe this is a good place to start where do you take the time where do you step back how do you do that where do you even start from to say like this is a goal we have but what could the implications have and so uh, maybe we can start there we can you know dive into a bunch of different areas yeah i mean i think some of the things that I hear from designers in the industry, especially as I've been kind of like teaching this and kind of like running around talking about it and writing about systems thinking is that um, one design, I don't know, maybe it could just be the designers that I'm talking to specifically, but so many of them seem really values driven mm. and they feel like there's this kind of cognitive dissonance between what they're doing at work and kind of the value, the personal values that they hold, um, especially those who are working in the technology industry and are working on things that maybe have things like an advertising-based business model or what have you. Um, and I think they're trying to account for, I don't know, try, trying to see if there are processes that could help resolve some of that disconnect. Um, my answer to that is kind of like, maybe it kind of depends on where you work and kind of like what the products and services are that you're working on. Um, and I think really in terms of the shortcomings of our general design approach, which is still to this day, very user centered. Um, it's, I think it's shortcomings are essentially around not understanding I guess, the full status quo. Like, what is the context in which our products are entering the world and not just in terms of the direct benefit of use? So we're still kind of designing digital products in a way that we're trying to respond to when somebody is actively using a product, like what's happening right in front of them. These are the things that we test through validation and what have you. But um, I feel like it's still pretty rare to consider not just our users, but even just like other immediate stakeholders around them and not to mention other stakeholders in the system. Like, mm. so decision makers, what have you. Um, and my goal is to kind of help create not just um not contribute, not just contribute to a change in mindset, but also kind of thinking really carefully about processes, methods, and tools, and how designers can kind of integrate that into their work. And I think about systems thinking as three tenets that we need to keep in mind. And one is thinking about interconnectedness. Um, so just as I mentioned earlier, like all of the different players in a system mm -hmm. into which you're entering or designing something for or trying to problem solve within. Um, the other is wholeness. So kind of thinking not just about certain touch points, but about the system as a whole that could include things like policy, which is something that a lot of designers don't think about um, within their processes, even though maybe it's in the back of their minds or what have you. And then the other is causality. So what are the radiating effects or what are the cascading effects of what you're doing? Like what happens if your product or service inadvertently causes harm mm. or how can you kind of anticipate for that? 
And so I think first and foremost, you need to understand the status quo. I think we do a lot of things like I'm I'm a design researcher, so we do a lot of foundational research around understanding like people's context like contextual situations and right. um before COVID was doing a lot of my research was contextual inquiry based. Now it's um, Zoom based, like especially as I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of like projects oriented around education and the education system. And, and I think like, that's fine. That's something that we need to understand is kind of continuing to drive for empathy at every step of the process. Um, But I think there's like these other things that act as both like barriers and opportunities within the system that surrounds kind of those end users and end beneficiaries. Um, So if I'm interviewing, for example, in an education oriented project, um, students and teachers, because those are the people who are closest to using maybe an education based product in the classroom. Sure. We're going to have to talk to like policymakers, researchers in the space, the people who are designing high stakes standardized tests, like all of these things have an impact on whatever the outcomes we're trying to achieve for those end users and and beneficiaries through designing a product. So in this this notion of interconnectedness, uh, it, it feels like we often get a little myopic and just think about, quote unquote, the customer, right? As opposed to like a like a web of, of people that could potentially be impacted the parents of the students uh, in the school for example and and go from there so that that feels like at the at the sort of like the the research brief you would create would be an exercise you'd take uh, either your clients or the rest of your team or your stakeholders through to kind of figure out like Let's start with who we know we identified will be the person like with the phone or sitting in front of the screen, right? And from there, um, do this like who who else is connected process, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is trying to understand. I mean, one way one way that I kind of describe systems thinking is is trying to understand where power lies mm. and where incentives lie. Um, and sometimes as we're just like focused on a user, we might not be acknowledging kind of a series of incentives that might be counterproductive to like even the experiences we're trying to create for an end user. Um, I recently did, so a lot of my work, like it's very unsexy, it's mapping. (laughs) It's just like creating various maps, like it could be a map of causal loops, it could be a map of stakeholders kind of radiating out or Mm -hmm. showing like what their connections are. And one of them that my team and I had done recently on a project that was education oriented was, you know, a two by two, where it was, you know, power on power within the system versus like influence in the classroom. Um, and teachers have a lot of influence in the classroom, but they don't have a lot of power in the system. And so kind of understanding that helps you understand like where you need to intervene within the system. Even if you're like designing, let's say a software product for English language arts, right? That is meant to be used by a middle school teacher within a classroom. You need to consider like, 
who is making decisions about the like the curriculum at the state right and kind of understand what their incentives are otherwise you could design something really great for your end user and it will just it could just like sink to the bottom of whatever because you don't know you don't know what's going on in those other spaces there's also i think uh a bit of speculation around almost uh almost like disaster scenario planning right like what what could go wrong here um yeah. and so 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 if we have this web of interconnected people uh that are at various levels of hierarchy i guess in the in the the defined power system in in wherever you're designing then like where could abuses happen or what are the unforeseen consequences um that one seems hard you know like like i said like i mentioned with the google analytics example um as uh as taking the time to stop then and think what are the potential implications of you know every every design decision that we're making it's uh um i don't know how how do you take people through that yeah so I think in many ways, that's one of the key shortcomings of like, maybe not even just like a user-centered design approach, but many design approaches in general, is that there's not a clear acknowledgement or addressing of potential harm. Like, no one wants to talk about the potential harm that their product might cause. It's a huge buzzkill during the design process. When you're trying to ideate, you're trying to be creative, um, especially in the technology industry, there's definitely kind of a baked in sense of techno optimism that mm. kind of clouds the rest of our thinking. Um, oh my God, I have like a really good example of this. So I, my team and I were... Once working, I'm trying to think of how much of this I can actually say. Okay, so we're working with a big technology company, um, and they they're working on an emerging technology. I'll try to be vague in that way. So we're kind of doing like a strategic ideation mm -hmm. facilitated session with them, and um, one of my colleagues and I were talking about an example from Black Mirror. We're kind of like, oh yeah, there's this episode where these soldiers, like, it's like everyone kind of looks like avatars to them. And one of the, one of the members of the client team was like, oh, yeah, 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 that's good. Like, put that on a sticky note on the board. And we're like, where? And there's like, like feature ideas. And we're like, wait, like, you want this to be like a feature idea, like something that you will eventually build. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, it's a really good idea. And we're just kind of like, you realize when we talk about Black Mirror, it's like a cautionary tale, right? It's not meant <laughs> as inspiration for our, like, creative ideation session. We're trying to consider what's going to happen kind of beyond, um, you know, these, these feature decisions that you're actually trying to make. And I think it was just like, so many conversations go that way where it's kind of like, well, if we never know, we're never going to know what's everything that's going to happen. And I guess in some ways, my response to that is like, so then you'll just do nothing and let everything happen. <laughs> is, is that the goal? Um, 
it's it's kind of like a, a I don't know, sort of like an active maybe putting our heads in the sand so that we can be like, well, we didn't necessarily know that that's something that would happen. You see this happening a lot, especially with products like Facebook, right? Where they're like, we had no idea people would use this product in that way. We had no idea that groups would connect white supremacists. Like, who knew? Right. <laughs> right. Like, you have to, all you have to do is spend some time in the world and see how we could potentially collect, connect people who are toxic with other people who are toxic. Sure. Yeah, I think that's one of the pieces that's really missing is just kind of thinking about potential harm um, that we might cause. And there's lots of ways we can address this through the course of our work. Um, and oftentimes, it raises some really potentially hard questions in terms of trade-offs and incentives. In order to do the right thing, you might have to accept that. I don't know. This could mean less profit, or it could mean that your team or your product team doesn't meet its KPIs. And yeah, those are just, I think it's better to have those conversations than to not. And I'm not sure that it always will swing the way that people want it to. It might mean that you're working for the wrong place if you want to do the right thing. Or right. Um, you might have to, I don't know, take collective action. You know, we see this happening in places like Amazon. Um, they had fired one of their climate activists last year who now works at Microsoft, by the way. Um, and I think those are just like part of the series of choices that people have to make. Yeah, let's talk more about incentives, but, uh, <laughs> but we're going to take a little break uh, before we do that. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by a podcast called Technology Untangled. You know, it's really amazing, the diversity and range of podcasts these days. There's just so much out there now, and it's always so great to find something that aligns with what you're interested in at the moment. Uh, there's one in particular hosted by Michael Bird, where he attempts to decipher tech's rapid evolutions with one simple question in mind. What's really going to shape our future? And what's going to end up in the bargain bin with all the floppy disks and things like that? I listened to an episode of Technology Untangled uh, from last season, I think it was, about digital ethics, which is a topic you'll all certainly recognize as something I've been thinking of quite a bit about. We've had a bunch of guests on this podcast grappling with the same topic. And it's super interesting to hear Michael and a few of his guests talk about the topic less as a warning or a constraint, but more about how using strong ethical values as a source of innovation and competitive advantage can really help companies. It was super refreshing. So you should go check it out. Uh, some of the past episodes have guests from Google's and Sainsbury's and New York Times and Nokia. Uh, and Michael covers a bunch of different topics. Uh, he did a deep dive into 5G and entangles like who and what and where and how and all of that's getting rolled out and what it means for you. He looked at uh, supercomputers and how they're helping us with the fight against COVID uh, by sifting through billions of molecules to look for drugs to repurpose. Uh, there's one on AI and the future of jobs, an episode on energy innovation uh, and a mission to Mars. There's so many choices. So search for Technology Untangled anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes uh, so you can follow that as well. So our thanks to Technology Untangled for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, all right, so you know one of the one of the things I, I hear in, in all of this uh, around designers 
being sort of the torchbearers of ethical decisions um, quite often in, in organizations and really wanting to do work and practice their craft in a way that aligns with their values, um, but that so many fundamental product and business decisions decisions happen uh, by people that are higher up in the organization that have more power. And that tension to say like, we are, we are designing a thing and in our research, it looks like there are negative implications, but in order to achieve, you know, that a design that doesn't have those, it's going to reduce in less profitability. It's an incredibly difficult thing for a, a, you know, an interface designer, a user experience designer to step up and try to do in an organization. So you mentioned collective action. Um, there are, you know, people have talked about unionizing designers or, or you know, people working in digital products and, and things like that. Um, I don't know. How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of accepting that you might not have influence in certain spaces. Like if the work that you're doing adheres to a business model that you know, you feel like is ethically suspect, then you either need to make noise in your organization about how it's ethically suspect and perhaps be equipped to present alternatives, or you may like, frankly, need to leave the organization. Hmm. Um, so I think it could be that some designers need to make like some tough decisions depending on where they're working. I do think like as an individual designer, you have some power over what you're designing, especially if you think that your product team is doing the right thing. So one of my, an example I use a lot is like one of my former colleagues who is an intern at one of the companies that I worked at. She, um, she was working with a client team and again, on like an emerging technology. And one of the things that they were wanting her to design um, user stories for was this idea of, um, I don't know what you call it. It's like, it's been so long since I traveled. I no longer know what this is called, but it's like <laughs> rewards programs, <laughs> like frequent flyer miles or sure. like for hotels or whatever, right? And, loyalty, I think it's the Yeah, loyalty <laughs> programs, got it. Yeah. Um, Oh God. Yeah. It's just been way too long. Um, I don't know what's happened to my miles and just anyway. So, <laughs> so, uh, she was, she was kind of tasked with doing this and she was just kind of like, I don't know, like I really care about inclusive design and I feel like this is a really like, it's one is sort of like an exclusionary sort of principle um this idea of rewarding these loyalty members who are already like super privileged in this space um and so i want to kind of think about people who are typically more marginalized in the process and so she actually pitched them this idea of um designing for people with a specific disability and kind of made the case for it and everything and they allowed her to kind of switch tacks and do it. So I think it's like, I don't know. I think to me, it's a good example of somebody who's trying to design for the kinds of a kind of societal outcome they want to see in a very, in a, you know, maybe feels like a very small way, but that she kind of took action to kind of switch the course of the specifics of what she was working on, even though she was like, literally the lowest member of this organization. She was an intern working for the <laughs> consultancy of 
working for a client. And um, I don't know, like I hear, I, I do hear a lot of designers say like, I just don't have power over anything that I'm working on. And I think in many ways that might be true, but I wonder too, if like, there's a little bit of questioning the framing that needs to happen there. Like, what can you do within the course of your responsibilities? There's probably also, you know, difficulty with the time horizon, right? Like I, uh, so often we think about our OKRs in terms of quarters and, you know, um, and maybe we've got a, a 2021 plan and, you know, we'll start planning the next year after that. But, uh, but but thinking about the kind of change that happens over the course of a decade and how we might be able to uh, start to influence that. I think about things like, you know, uh, transparency in supply chains, right? And how now, like that is, uh, you know, to be a little bit crass about it, a huge marketing win for organizations. But they, you know, you mentioned a decade ago or or or, or longer that you know, saying like on your website, you should put literally every manufacturer that touches any part of of the product beforehand. And let's let's you know, and I see that more and more on sites today all the time because that is going to um, cause conversion in informed uh, consumers. So that uh, I think is is the sort of thing where you can look back and go like, wow, you know, in the last decade we've made a ton of progress, even if it has felt like. Uh, I tried and I couldn't, and I tried and I couldn't. That t- that time horizon is something I think that helps a lot. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, this is something that I see. You know, I I do some some of my consulting work is oriented around ethical innovation, and I think with some of the companies that I work with, their biggest challenge is essentially like how their OKRs are structured, like what they're incentivized to do and when. Mm. And um, I think that's one of those areas where it kind of needs a reframing maybe from the people in power. And it's not impossible. I mean, you look at an organization like, okay, like you look at an organization like Amazon and they spent how many years kind of not turning a profit and somehow the world, the market, like everybody accepted that. And it was like, okay, we see what you're doing. Um, So I don't think it's impossible to kind of change or reframe what our incentives are. And I think you're touching on something that is becoming, like feels like it's becoming more and more common is kind of this demand from, I don't know, companies, customers, and audience to kind of just do better. And I know some of that can end up in the realm of like, you know, especially with sustainability, kind of greenwashing and and that type of thing. But I think it is one of those touch points where um, sort of this customer-oriented pressure alongside things like regulation or policymaking mm. can actually make a huge difference. Um, and I know like for most designers, it's kind of like working within a company or an organization, you're not going to have necessarily an influence on policymaking, but who knows? I mean, like, I kind of think like you see that changing a little bit too with company employees putting pressure on their organization to have, um, 
you know, like more clarity on their policies as well as like what kinds of outcomes their relationships with policymakers have. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you if you look at, uh, I think one example I've, uh, I, I saw in some of your writing before was um, it, thinking through uh, a use case of like ride sharing, Lyft or Uber, right? Um, right. And, you know, in product focused thinking, it's, you know, well, we need an app for users and an app for drivers and we'll connect it up and, you know, there'll be a bunch of technology that we use to do that. Um, and shifting to experience, like, you know, I was talking about over the last 20 years, which is about much more about what's it like to get a ride and how does the driver find you and what is your experience inside the car and all of those things focused on the need of a single user as opposed to the outcomes, right? Again, um, you know, that uh, perhaps there's less drunk driving in a community, but also increased traffic congestion and exploitation of contractors and things like that, leading all the way to, for example, in the November ballot in California, policy change, right? A, right. you know, a, a, a desire to change the law for how, you know, gig working is happening and, uh, and, and that economy. So, you know, little steps, little steps, little steps, and then all of a sudden the sea change, right? Like, you know, so I do think it is, it is possible. Yeah. I think that's something that, especially in the tech industry, we, we struggle with a lot is like this idea of incrementalism. So one of my favorite examples, just, just like as a systems thinking example, um, in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, he talks about geriatric care yeah. and the uh, efficacy of geriatric care. So th there's a study that sh that he refers to that shows that 40% um, of uh, patients who had geriatric care didn't require home health care um, through the course of like their engagement with geriatric care. And one thing he points out is like, if this were a technology, if this were like a literal like technological device that you would insert into your body there would be so much funding for it like imagine like a 40 percent reduction in home health care for people who are like age 70 and over um that you know there would be like reward awards there would be all sorts of things that reinforce that this is the right thing to do with geriatric care because it's incremental it's totally unsexy it doesn't involve technology it, is, it just involves like good nurses and doctors who get paid the least out of nurses and doctors, um, they're cutting geriatric programs in all of these different hospital systems throughout the country because it's not a moneymaker. It also, um, it's it's kind of like not something we value as a source of in innovation necessarily. Um, so I don't know. I it's There's this running joke like with like one of my former colleagues that talk or whatever and there's a q a it always ends on because capitalism <laughs> like anytime you talk about systems thinking it'll be like well yeah because capitalism <laughs> oh elon musk oh because capitalism <laughs> <laughs> this episode of presentable is brought to you by pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast way of experience. Doesn't matter how well you've targeted your marketing content or how beautifully you've designed your website, they'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. So with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover your website performance and how it affects your visitor's experience. You can take action before your business is impacted. All of this for as low as $10 a month. 
Whether your visitors are dispersed around the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom can help you identify bottlenecks, troubleshoot performance, and make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. This means you can monitor millions of page views and not just take samples of your data. And you can do that at an affordable price. Get live site performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. Get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then, when you're ready to buy, you can use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and Relay FM. Take us back a little bit to process again, right? If I think about, again, 20 years ago, think, starting to think more about experiences that people were having meant that we had to invent a lot of ways of working that just didn't exist. There was discovery research that had a lot of roots in anthropology and ethnography, and there was uh, validation research that you know came from a lot of psychological studies and you know things like that bringing together all of that to a set of documents that we could use that were tools that could help explain things to people visualizations like it was a ton of that meta work had to happen just to be able to get the you know better design outcomes i wonder if that that kind of that level of thing is uh is happening for uh you know system thinking and outcome based design and 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 you know where do we where do we start where do we what what needs to change or what tools do we have? Yeah, so that is absolutely where the rubber hits the road. And it's kind of the space that I describe myself working in, which is basically working on trying to make changes within the design practice to incorporate systems thinking. And what that looks like is I kind of divide the process into two parts, like the first being understanding the status quo and the second sort of planning for the human-centered design process. And so the first is kind of like doing some of that like very unsexy mapping that I was just describing to you earlier, which is kind of like really understanding your network of stakeholders, understanding who you need to talk to, understanding who you want to actually engage in human-centered design research. Um, And then the other is also mapping causality. And so thinking like causal loops is a core method in within sort of formalized systems thinking. Um, you know, Danella Meadows several years ago wrote this book, Thinking in Systems, which is kind of like the Bible of system thinking. Um, what's interesting though, is like the causal loop mapping ends up in the formalized systems thinking practice as kind of an end product in and of itself. You then create interventions and kind of see how things shift within your map is it involves a lot of modeling. Um, For designers, I know we already have kind of like a baseline process that is, you know, user-centered design or human-centered design. And so my goal is to help kind of piggyback on top of those pretty already good practices Mm -hmm. that we've established over the last um, couple of decades and really codified. Um, So it's not meant to kind of like blow up the human-centered design process is more about like how can we integrate systems thinking within human-centered design, and so a lot of it is actually just like taking a more time for understanding and analysis. So if you think of that five-part process, design thinking process we always refer to, which is like 
understanding or empathizing, define, ideate, prototype, and test, I'm thinking really carefully about that understand and define phase of things. Like, how can you understand the landscape in which you're this, like, I don't, I don't like calling it the problem space necessarily, because I think it's just, um, especially working in education, I want to use kind of like, I want to understand like the nuance and it's not just a series of problems. There's also kind of like a series of opportunities or what have you, um, and assets, like things that already exist in the space that you could take advantage of. And you do that by causal loop mapping. You do that by stakeholder mapping. Um, you do that by, yeah, just kind of like really understanding the network in which you want to enter. And what that should result in is one, an understanding of like what a media uh, group in their kind of systems thinking um, framework call the deep structure. So what's at the root of all of the things that are cascading out, either good or bad? And then you kind of like think about where interventions are possible within that space. And some of them will be within your purview as a designer. Some of them will be more at the level of policy, but it's good to have an understanding of where the most effective points of intervention are Hmm. and then to go forward and create things like I do you know I work a lot within um the philanthropy space with clients and so a lot of them and government as well and a lot of them integrate theory of change mapping and so I'm really trying to get those in the design practice to integrate theory of change canvases into their work. And what that means is taking those points of intervention and kind of working it through a theory of change so that you can connect it to the outcomes that you want to see and understand as well what the indicators would need to be. So if you're thinking, for example, like the Gates Foundation does a lot of work in the space of malaria, right? Yeah. The, the eventual impact you want to achieve is the eradication of malaria. But some of the outcomes that you want is X percentage of the of the population is vaccinated. Like now that we have a malaria vaccine, which got very little press because of everything else that's going on. Um, <laughs> and the indicator for that is X number of vaccines distributed. Um, and so kind of working through kind of that series of things that will happen once, let's say, your product, service, or whatever it is that you're designing kind of hits, then that kind of helps you make better decisions along the way. I'm also kind of advocating for other, I don't know, other methods that we don't take advantage of as readily in design practice. So things like speculative design um, kind of practices, kind of envisioning future worlds that your, you know, maybe like your decisions might sit in. So if we're focused Mm. on social media, which is something I've been doing research on for the last couple of years, um, you know, what does it look like in a landscape where, and that allows you to kind of also think about something you touched on earlier, which is uncertainty, which we're also really bad at is designing for uncertainty. Um, So kind of thinking about that kind of scenario planning or speculative um, kind of uh, speculative design helps us helps us kind of imagine things a little bit more broadly than we currently do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a tremendous opportunity to really lay down some of the fundamentals of a like the next generation of product design, frankly. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping to be a part of that because like right now I'm writing a book on systems thinking for designers. And so I think one thing I'm struggling with is it's, I mean, it really is like a mindset shift, Mm -hmm. but it's also like one of the biggest barriers is, well, how do I apply this practically within the course of my work and within the organization that I'm in? That's one of the biggest questions I get from other designers who are like, okay, I love the idea of incorporating systems thinking. How? Like, tell me how. I mean, I do a lot, I do a lot of research work with teachers and many of them are the same way. It's like, give me the manual. <laughs> like, yeah. Give me the thing that gives me the practical tools to bring into the classroom so that I can kind of like change my way of working. Yeah. And so that's a lot of what I'm focused on right now is kind of testing those boundaries within my own practice, um, as well as kind of seeing how others are doing it um, in the world too. And, you know, for example, um, there are a lot of practitioners in the space of civic design who are doing really good work in this way because their audience is not just like customers. They can't narrow to like a specific set of customers. They have to think about citizens. <laughs> and so That's that yeah. automatically puts you in a frame of mind in which you have to think more broadly and you have to think about cascading effects. Ah, interesting. Yeah. The adjacency, right? Like the opportunity there looking at other, yeah. yeah. Like, go, let's go, let's go hang out with policymakers and see what it's like. Right. And yes. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Well, yeah. Like you mentioned writing a book, I think, uh, you told me that's coming out in another year or so. Um, I look forward to seeing that. Um, I thought this conversation is fantastic. Where, where can people, uh, kind of follow along and see your progress? Yeah, so um, you can find me on Twitter um, at Cheryl Kababa, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, you can look me up there. And sometimes I write on Medium, though now that I'm working on this book, I haven't been writing <laughs> on Medium so much. <laughs> Maybe this will be this will spur me to do so. And I'm also giving a masterclass on systems thinking at um, UX London's UX Fest in June. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds great. That sounds fantastic. I will put links to all of that in the notes uh, for this episode and uh, look forward to seeing everything you do in the future, Cheryl. Thanks so much for being on the program. It's a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.